Mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the final projects in the long-running Blanchard Valley Flood Mitigation Plan were supposed to break ground this year. Now they've been put on hold yet again as officials await additional federal grant money. We'll talk about this latest delay. Also this morning in our Community and Business Spotlight, the Center for Corporate Engagement at Ohio Northern University has a program to help frontline managers excel at their jobs. We'll learn more. And local filmmaker A.J. Dufresne talks about the upcoming premiere of his latest project and its many Findlay connections. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. Mexico is now the biggest exporter of goods into the United States. This is according to a new report from the Commerce Department. For roughly 20 years, the past two decades, China has been the top exporter of goods to the U.S. But last year, 2023, Mexico has surpassed China to be number one. Mexico sent us $475 billion worth of goods, a 5% increase over the previous year. China, on the other hand, brought into this country $427 billion worth of goods, which was a decline of 20%. So Mexico went up by 5 China went down by by 20 So it's a 25% swing, basically. Um, I know the math doesn't exactly work that way, but, um, but yeah, that's a, a huge swing. And Mexico, now the biggest uh, exporter of goods into the United States. Just kind of interesting. Uh, let's see. Some of the other uh, items jumped out at me um, on the newswire this morning that are very important to know. <laughs> uh, amazing science. Amazing science. Here, uh, scientists have created new forms of cheese after discovering how blue cheese gets its classic look. (laughs) Apparently, scientists have been working on this for years, and they finally have been able to manipulate the chemical pathway that creates the blue veins in blue cheese. And so now they are creating... Different colored cheeses, new forms of cheese. They are uh, altering the chemical pathway to create yellow, reddish, red uh, cheese, and brown cheese. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm, I... I don't know. I, uh, red would be a little wild. Red cheese. Would you try a new cheese if it were red? I, I think the most... Uh, the the least appetizing, just from the color of it, uh, would be brown. You know, I mean, generally, you think of brown foods as not particularly appetizing. You know what I mean? When things turn brown, um, you think that's probably a, not a good thing. But in this case, making deliberately making brown cheeses. Uh, Dr. Paul Dyer is in the UK. Uh, so we wanted to see if we could develop new strains with new flavors and new appearances. Taste test volunteers claim 
that the reddish and brown cheeses are more tangy, while the lighter colored cheeses had a mild flavor. But the scientists don't necessarily believe that the color in and of itself affects the taste. The scientists suspect that the color could have influenced the findings of the taste test volunteers. That you see a cheese that's reddish or brown, and you think your mind tricks you into thinking it's going to be uh, more tangy when it, it may or may not actually be. So, I don't know. But would you? I, I don't know. I know if these are uh, coming to uh, coming to the market anytime soon. I have no idea. Um, but they are out there, apparently. New cheeses. Big, big science. Important science. We want to make sure that you are aware of all of the uh, important news uh, of the day. So. Uh, speaking of foods, according to Restaurant Business Magazine, the trade publication Restaurant Business Magazine, the most talked about fast food chain on social media this year, uh, well, this year being 2023, referencing 2023, the most talked about fast food chain, Taco Bell. Um, you know the old saying that uh, any publicity is good publicity. That may or may not hold true for Taco Bell. They did account for 23% of all fast food restaurant mentions online. 23%. Unfortunately, they say, the discussions tended to center around rising prices and quality concerns. So maybe all publicity is not good publicity in this case. People are complaining about the quality and about higher prices. That's the bad news. The good news, Taco Bell has launched a new cravings value menu featuring items that are $3 and under, and that has some... Change, uh, changing their tune when it comes to uh, fast or uh, when it comes to uh, social media reaction to the uh, fast food chain. Uh, one post online, and this was on Reddit actually, the online bulletin board. The new cravings menu has changed my life. When I wake up in the morning, I spring out of bed because I genuinely feel like I have something new and exciting to look forward to. <laughs> it's an actual comment from someone. I don't know if that's meant to be sarcastic, or this is a person that has absolutely no life. Uh, No no idea, but if that's what's motivating you to get out of bed in the morning, (laughs) I don't know. But uh, yeah, that I thought was interesting. Taco Bell, the most talked about fast food chain uh, in America on social media. So better or for worse, I guess. Speaking of uh, of food and uh, food restaurants, food chains, and uh, so on, uh, here is a another way to exact revenge on your ex, sort of. The Asian food chain, P.F. Chang's, has found a way to fill your broken heart if you have found yourself uncoupled right before Valentine's Day. They are offering free dumplings for the freshly dumped. Dumplings for the dumped. Um, this is a special that they're doing now through February 21st, which is National Breakup Day. Did you know that? February 21st is National Breakup Day. It's one week 
<laughs> after Valentine's Day. Anyway, between now and February 21st, uh, text your story, uh, your breakup story to the company, PF Change. They've set up a, a special texting line. If you are dumped, uh, if you were dumped via electronic means, via email or via text message, you can forward a screenshot of your breakup text to their special number, along with the keyword Chang's Dumplings. And they will send you instructions on how to turn your broken heart into a six count of shrimp or pork dumplings, either in the restaurant or via delivery. Uh, you can check the P.F. Chang's website for more details. Nearest P.F. Chang's to us would be Imami. So you're welcome if you have been freshly dumped and get free dumplings. But that is not the best uh, breakup promotion for Valentine's Day. Now, you've heard of all of the different ways that you can stick it to your ex uh, around Valentine's Day for those who are brokenhearted on the day of perpetual love. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of places. The one animal shelter uh, will write the name of your ex in the kitty litter at the, uh, at the shelter and let the cats do their business. <laughs> There's the... The one zoo, and I, I don't remember who started this. Was it San, uh, San Diego Zoo? or I know there are a lot of zoos that uh, will name rather unsavory creatures for your ex. I think it started with the hissing cockroaches. You could name a hissing cockroach after your ex. <laughs> and other zoos and animal sanctuaries will do similar things. To, they had, uh, I think the one zoo, and again, I don't remember which one it is, uh, will uh, name a rat. After your ex, and then feed feed it to the snakes. <laughs> it was a different uh, different things. There are all kinds of different ways to stick it to your ex, but this, I think, is the best one I have heard yet. The customized toilet paper company who gives a crap dot com <laughs> has announced a flush your ex program that will turn your ex's love letters into customized toilet paper. <laughs> so if you have all of those love letters that your ex wrote you stuck in a sock drawer somewhere or stuck in a shoebox or whatever, you can, you can send the letters in and it says, we will magically transform their BS into TP. <laughs> uh, because, they say, nothing says closure like knowing that someone somewhere is putting those sweet nothings exactly where they belong. <laughs> you can send in your uh, ex's love letters through February 29th, and uh, they will send back custom toilet paper. So, now that is the gift that keeps on giving right there. That is... <laughs> uh, here is the website if you are interested. I love this. I think this is, <laughs> this is all kinds of awesome. You can visit the uh, website flushyourex.whogivesacrap.org for more details. I don't know how much it costs. I don't know how much uh, toilet paper you will get out of your uh, ex's love letters. But uh, (laughs) that that one may be the best way yet to stick it to your ex if you 
have gone through a recent breakup ahead of Valentine's Day. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started here. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly to mostly sunny today, a high around 60. Partly cloudy tonight, a low around 50. Police in Cary say a missing man has been found deceased. The police department says Philip Joseph Evans was reported missing on Saturday. Cary officers and deputies from the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office searched multiple areas in and around Cary. And then on Tuesday, officers from the Cary Police Department responded to an address on Oakwood Place. Officers were checking the property and located a deceased male in the yard. The man was identified as Evans. An autopsy will take place at the Lucas County Coroner's Office. The investigation is ongoing. Get more in the story on our website. The Ohio Attorney General's Office has asked a county court to dismiss a lawsuit regarding the state's six-week abortion ban known as the Heartbeat Bill. That ban is void right now because voters passed issue one in November, choosing to protect access to abortion in the state's constitution. The AG's office says is asking the Hamilton County Court of Common Pleas to throw out the lawsuit, which seeks to eliminate the ban. Yost's office says it wants to fight against, quote, other provisions listed in the suit. I'm Tracy Townsend. A judge has granted a temporary restraining order as a pastor in the city of Bryan fights zoning violations he incurred. Pastor Chris Avell was charged for housing the homeless in his church, Dad's Place. Filled with passion, Avell explains why he isn't feeling guilty. This is how I worship my God, and I just want to be able to worship my God. Other ministries in Bryan agree with him. Bryan First Assembly of God hosted a fundraiser for Dad's Place Church. The meal's creating unity and lifting spirits while raising money to go directly to Dad's Place Church and further Avell's mission. WTOL 11's Ryan Lachine reporting. Blanchard Valley Health System says it's acquired two new surgical robots as part of its continued commitment to offering state-of-the-art technology to provide quality health care. BBHS says the robots allow surgeries to be performed more efficiently, which is better for the patient, as they'll spend less time under anesthesia. Learn more and see a picture of the robots in the story on our website. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So our cover story this morning, the final projects in the long-running Blanchard Valley Flood Mitigation Plan were supposed to break ground this year. But now they have been pushed back yet again as officials await federal grant money. Joining us this morning to talk about these latest delays, Finley Mayor Christina Mern. Mayor Mern, thanks very much for uh, being with us uh, yeah, this morning. Good morning, morning Chris. Uh, forgive me, but this seems like a here we go again uh, <laughs> scenario. Well, you know what? This is has been a very comprehensive, complex, and and big project, right over over the years. Mm-hmm. And um, I can assure the people that we are in the home stretch. We are committed to getting these projects done. I know the Hancock County Commissioners, Mommy Watershed Conservancy District are committed. And though this is frustrating to have another delay, we think mm-hmm. it's what's best to make sure that the projects get done and are uh, least costly to the, the people of Hancock County. So these are the biggest uh, parts of the, of the project. Yes, I mean, far and away, these are, we're talking about the uh, retention basin. We're talking about the uh, Norfolk Southern Railroad the Bridge Railroad and Bridge the phase two Ben chain. Yeah. So these are the, the big Correct. ones. Um, and I, I had been under the impression, I think many people were, that these had already been paid for, that the money was already there to do these projects. So based off of our 2019 cost projection, 
donations, yes, the, that money <laughs> is here. However, as everybody else has seen, uh, cost of everything has gone up over the last five years pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. And so when we estimate what we expect the projects through construction to actually cost, the cost has gone up over uh, $20 million. That's quite a yeah. jump uh, yeah. in recent years. So what happens? So are these these federal grants now that we're applying mm-hmm. to to close that gap uh, are they guaranteed? What happens if they if we don't get them? Yeah, so we definitely have been evaluating other uh, funding opportunities. We do believe that this is the most likely, though it's not guaranteed. Um, and so we should have a pretty good indication later this summer if we will receive or have moved forward in the process for the grant. Um, and then we'll be able to reevaluate. Additionally, if we're not able to receive this grant, then what we will most likely do is go ahead and proceed with putting the projects out to bid. And then that way we will have a more definitive cost because right now we still are working off of the projections um, and hopefully those would come in lower. But to receive the federal, the FEMA um, emergency management grant, mm-hmm. we can't do a bid process prior to receiving the grant. So what uh, what options would be there then if that grant funding doesn't uh, come through? You put it out to bid, you get a, an estimate that may be $20 million more than what you have in the bank. Does that mean mm-hmm. that you we have to cancel these uh, no. projects? Again, or? we're very committed. We recognize the community benefit, the economic benefit, <laughs> you know, psychological benefit, and the fact that these, these projects have to get done. We're in the home stretch. We have the designs. We have the permits. We're really ready to go. So uh, I think probably nobody is more frustrated than the group that's been working on this. Sure. Um, but no, what we, we've evaluated a couple of options. You know, one would be to phase uh, the base and project. That's not ideal, but there is some options there to help decrease the cost. Um, obviously, the city's committed to helping uh, put some funding support to it. Um, we, there, there are a number of different mechanisms to be able to, over a period of time, uh, collect some additional fees to put towards this. But ultimately, the goal is to cover this with the least impact to the citizens. You talk about uh, the possibility of the city putting more uh, money and increasing fees to raise funds. Does Is that code for putting another uh, issue before the voters to raise the sales taxes no. we didn't get the initial money? For? No, that's not really being looked at. There okay. are a number of fees that are charged um, so first of all, the city of Finley, obviously we're committed um, and we would look at putting funds aside over the next couple of years, putting money towards it. Um, we would evaluate that. We don't have any definitive plan as we evaluate this. We could look back at other state grants or the state capital budget as we received the first $60 million. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of other things like conveyance fees or different things like that where we could make a small you know, couple dollar increase that would generate some revenue to help offset the costs. So what is the new timeline? As we mentioned, uh, these were projects that were scheduled to break ground this year, anticipated to break ground this year. Uh, How far does this push this back now? Correct. Um, So my understanding is that we'll submit the grant uh, this month. We should have an indication if we're continuing to be considered probably in the summertime and we know by the end of the year. And then we would hopefully be able to bid out in early spring of next year and begin begin construction next summer or fall. So by pushing about by about by uh, about a year (laughs) approximately. We can't talk this morning. We haven't had enough coffee. (laughs) Um, Yes. So about a year. Um. How frustrating is that to still be talking about flood mitigation in 2024? I mean, this has been 
it'll be almost 20 years uh, yeah. since all of this started. Yeah, so I it is extremely frustrating, you know, and really disappointing. But I'm also very encouraged that if you look at the progress that has been made over really the last 10 years, mm-hmm. again, these are really big, complex, right? We all remember trying to deal with the Armor, Army Corps. Right. We all remember having to reevaluate what's best for our community um, and, and making sure that kind of everybody ha- had a broad understanding of Even the what debate we agreed over on. who should be in charge of this. Right, and yeah, and then, you know, the, the, the tax collection and then getting support, and, yeah, yeah, and then getting the yeah. conservancy court to adopt the plan mm-hmm. and all these different aspects. So right. I'm still encouraged that we have a lot of momentum. We're in the home stretch. I'm, I know we're going to get these done. And, you know, I, I shared with someone the other day, uh, you know, this is not just a personal thing that I know needs to get done as mayor of the city of Finley. But, uh, you know, I was in one of the homes in 2007 where we had to evacuate and we were fortunate that our home wasn't significantly damaged. But this is personal. My mom still lives in that home. Um, and so I think that everybody that's working on this recognizes that it's what's right for our community. We need the river to be an asset and not a liability. Uh, we look forward to the, you know, thousands of parcels that are going to be removed from the floodplain and not have that burden of cost. But this is also something that, you know, is personal to all of us as well. And when these, not if, but when these projects uh, are ultimately done, we're not looking at scaling back any of these uh, plans as they've been previously announced that this is what we're going to be doing. This is what we're going to be doing in these final, in this final phase. Correct. So no, uh, there's been no discussion. There of that. has been no discussion of changing the overall designs. As I mentioned, the only thing yeah. that's potentially been looked at is phasing uh, the basin project, but that would not have any impact to the long-term benefit that it would provide. Very good. So again, we will continue to uh, follow that story. While we're here, also really want to quickly uh, uh, have you uh, talk a little bit about this. Uh, yesterday, uh, you put out, uh, and I know this was discussed at, yeah. at council, you put out a, a rather lengthy uh, statement uh, slash policy on immigration in this community in yeah. in, in Findlay. Why why did you feel the need to make such a public statement on this? Yeah, I, I really felt that there's been so much misinformation that's been put out there. Right, I get calls and why are you bringing three thousand illegals into Findlay? Why are you partnering with Biden to do this? Why are you using our tax law? And none of that is happening. Um, and so I really felt like it was important to say, listen, we can be a community that can advocate for immigration reform and mm-hmm. a secure border. Completely agree with that. We also can be a place that recognizes that people are coming to our country appropriately. The majority of them are here legally mm-hmm. to make better lives for themselves and that they want to work and contribute to our community. But that also comes with some challenges, you know. Learning a new language is not easy, especially when you don't have access to it. So how do we, you know, or there are cultural differences that we need to educate on. Housing is a challenge. Transportation is a challenge. And those are challenges that other people in our community are facing. So how do we address them in a way that is not overwhelming our nonprofits or being burdensome, but recognizing that small tweaks to our current systems will benefit both our community as a whole as well as support the immigrant population that is seeking to come here. And we can do that and say, you're welcome here and we want you to be a part of our community and we want you to assimilate um, and and benefit our overall economy without um, treating people, you know, like they shouldn't be here or mm-hmm. with disregard. And I think it's really important that the city of Finley 
my office, we're serving as a convener for those groups and we're not putting significant resources into it. We're, we're looking for ways to improve systems that can benefit everyone. In fact, you have a task force dedicated to uh, addressing just this issue. You talk about the fact that you've received uh, some feed, negative feedback and, and so on, a lot of uh, questions. What has been the reaction to the work of the task force in terms of uh, embracing these initiatives? Has that been positive? Yeah, so I think um, the letter that we put out yesterday was well-received because I think it helped clarify a lot of things and um, I think hopefully dispel fear and misunderstanding. You know, I recognize that the national climate is such that this is a hot topic that people Mm -hmm. are seeing a lot of and our communities in a very different situation than many of the communities that are being highlighted on the television. So we needed to, to single out what's actually happening here. Um, the task force response I've been really proud of. You know, we have so many great organizations, whether they be churches, nonprofits, um, individual, you know, individuals um, that are just recognizing that, like, this is an opportunity for us to um, help people in need, um, educate. And again, a lot of the the individuals that are participating serve on our other coalitions that are already addressing these issues. And the task force is really identifying What are those small changes that we can make so that when your coalition is doing work to improve these issues across the board, you're thinking of how does that impact the immigrant population? How does that language barrier? Mm -hmm. So I I was really encouraged. I think we got some good um, action items that are low-hanging fruit that we can adjust to hopefully really help folks in our community and and address this in a productive um, kind of all-hands-on-deck manner that's going to be what our community would expect. We will leave it there. Again, Finley Mayor Christina Mern. Thanks very much for yeah, dropping great by. To we see you, appreciate Chris. it. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Putting the Ohio Northern University Center for Corporate Engagement in the spotlight once again this morning. Carol Turchik is uh, here to talk about a, a, this is kind of an ongoing program, I guess. It is uh, for frontline supervisors. First of all, let's talk a little bit about what you mean when you say frontline supervisors. Great. So that would be anybody who's really managing the people on the front lines, usually in manufacturing. Okay. Um, So it's people who probably have good technical skills and then have been moved into a position to now manage others. Okay. So this would be kind of middle management? uh, Yeah. Beginning management. Um, Beginning management. Yeah. They may have been there a while, but maybe they're new to this role or... um, it's just different and, from what they were doing. And in many cases, new to the concept of managing others, which can lead to issues in terms of people who may not feel equipped to do that well. Correctly. So um, you're really great at your job. And mm-hmm. so you've been asked to supervise others and move up into this role. And um, it's logical for people to do that. And right. it's a great way for companies to retain and promote people. Mm-hmm. Um, however, a lot of times what happens is they really don't have all the tools in their tool belt to manage people. Um, They may have those technical skills to help others with the technical issues. Um, So it's really important to understand what the tools are that people need in those roles and then provide them for them. Yeah, doing the job and managing others doing the job are two very different things. So what types of resources or tools do you uh, help these frontline supervisors acquire? Yeah, so we have a program where we will help them to really understand a a lot about themselves. 
you know, what are their strengths? Um, what do they really um, bring to ma- the management position mm-hmm. and how to capitalize on those? And then really where may be some gaps? Um, are they really thinking about the kind of conversations they're having? Are they having those conversations? Um, do they really take the time to make sure people um, feel empowered, have a vision? Um, and those things are really important um, as managers, um, but not necessarily when you're on the technical line. Now, this would be perfect, obviously, for someone who is in that role and maybe feeling like they're not as effective as they could possibly be. It also strikes me that this would be a great program for anyone who hopes to move into a managerial position, because as you said, many times that can be a stepping stone to further promotion on down the line. Absolutely. I mean, it's great to have those skills before you're in the role and right. really um, need them immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just to feel more empowered and um, confident in the role that they're in. And a lot of companies are really looking for those programs to do independently um, internally for their supervisors so we um, can partner with them to do that. So how would uh, folks learn more about this program? As you mentioned, this is kind of an ongoing uh, type of thing that you do, one of the many things that you do for uh, area businesses. Sure. So they can contact us at cce at onu.edu or they can call us at uh, 419-772-3552 and we'll make sure that they get all the information they need and we'll really work with them to see what that looks like for that person or that company. So again, something that you can customize for a particular business or industry. Absolutely. We can do it um, there or you know wherever they need to do that. And is this a, a one-day thing or is it a, a weekly thing for a set amount of time? I mean, what kind of time frame are we looking at? To- so we're super flexible. So okay. we understand that people in these roles, it's very tough to get them you know, off the line right. for any length right. of time. And sometimes it is easier to get them to have maybe a full day for, of focus. So we'll work with the company to figure out what's really best for them and their culture. All starts with uh, making contact. Mention again how folks can reach out. Sure. It's cce at onu.edu. Again, Carol Turchik with the Center for Corporate Engagement at Ohio Northern University. With us in the spotlight this morning, Carol, thanks very much. Thank you. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. So one of the big news stories today, we're going to hear an awful lot of commentary and analysis on this. The U.S. Supreme Court will begrudgingly, I'm sure, hear arguments today in Donald Trump's appeal of the Colorado ruling that would keep him off the Republican primary ballot in that state. In case you missed it earlier this week, we spoke with constitutional law professor Dr. Scott Gerber about the impact of that case. Historically, and the court has never been eager to inject themselves really into any matters of politics, uh, and especially in election matters. The 2000 election, one of the rare examples uh, where they have. Correct. Uh, the fallout after the Bush v. Gore case that you just mentioned was not good for the court's image uh, with the American people, and I'm sure they're dreading uh, having to go through that again, but it's really impossible for them to avoid. What I find interesting about this, it kind of uh, exposes or highlights uh, something of a quirk in the way elections are done in this country. The states 
do constitutionally have broad discretion in how even federal elections are structured and handled in their individual states. It's a very complicated case. You know, the court's trying to interpret what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment means, that the disqualification clause of it, you know, and that was enacted after the Civil War to make sure that people that were in the Confederacy uh, couldn't serve in the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the question is, uh, is President Trump disqualified because the argument is he um, participated in the January 6th, 2021 events at at the Capitol to a serious enough degree. Right. It sounds fairly straightforward, but there's there's well, more than one way to read the Constitution. If right. you just read read the text of the Constitution, well, you can take that either way. Then you could look at you know case law. What has the court done with sort of related cases? And there haven't been too many, but there are cases that do say the president's not above the law. No one's above the law, so right. that can cut either way. Yeah. And then the last two would be the policy argument. You know, do you want, do you really want, you know, uh, courts and, uh, and, you know, isolated secretaries of states depriving the American people of deciding who they want to vote for for president? And then the biggest one, the big picture, this is a democracy. We're supposed to vote for who we want to be mm-hmm. president. And if people want Trump to be president, they know what he's accused of doing. They can make that choice. It brings up the question, and again, it relates to the the powers that the states have to autonomously uh, hold their own elections. Do we want individual states making that decision? Because, as we've seen in Colorado and Maine, they have said, no, we're gonna not going to allow uh, Donald Trump on the ballot, but Michigan and, and other states uh, have been faced with the same question and have allowed it. So uh, it, it's kind of a piecemeal thing. And do we allow the states to make this big of a decision individually on their own? Right, especially if they're making that decision by reading a section of the U.S. Constitution. And I think in terms of the implications of the whichever way the Supreme Court decides on this, um, and I'm sure that this is something that the uh, justices will uh, keep in mind when they are debating and deciding the case, the broader implication of weaponizing the ballot system. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've talked for years about uh, the attack that the Democrats have been waging on Trump even before he was president, then when he was president, mm-hmm. and now when he's trying to be president again. And, you know, this, you could argue, is just another iteration of that, especially since he's ahead in the polls. And certainly the way politics are in this country in the modern day, anything that one party does, the other party is going to do uh, in response. I mean, we've seen it with impeachment, which used to be, I mean, the first 200 years of our of our nation, that was kind of the nuclear option that nobody uh, wanted to go near. And now it seems like we brandish about threats of impeachment for every president and now even a cabinet secretary. No, exactly right. It used to be um, impeachment was was very rare and now it's just as a matter of course if mm-hmm. if we if they don't if Congress or certain folks in Congress don't like the policy position of someone, they 
threat and to impeach him. When the justices consider this case and in their deliberations, how big of a factor does that play? Do they say, we don't want to open this Pandora's box of allowing the states to decide which candidates they want to allow or disallow uh, on, on the ballot? I mean, how big of a consideration uh, is that likely to be? Yeah, that's another excellent question, and that ties back to what I was saying about the different ways to read the Constitution. Mm-hmm. If you focus on the sort of policy way to read it rather than the text or the history, for example, you might emphasize that. Yeah. You know, it's, we just can't, we can't go down that road. You know, the other thing about this is this is going to have to be a rather quick decision. This is going to be a quick turnaround. It's not where you're going to hear the arguments now and then months from now we're going to get a decision. There's, uh, there is some expediency uh, required in this. There is, and I'm sure the court doesn't like that. My guess is they will um, decide it in time. When I clerked for a federal trial judge, I mean, we had, I still remember, it's been a long time, but we, we had a case involving, you know, a, a, a voting access kind of thing, and the judge had to decide it in a day. Just another example of how this is a very unusual, perhaps precedent-setting election. Again, uh, Dr. Scott Gerber is a constitutional law expert, uh, published author on the Supreme Court uh, with us uh, this morning to kind of break it all down. Scott, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. Appreciate your insight, as always. You're welcome, Chris. Yeah, I'm part of our uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Scott Gerber from earlier this week on the uh, case that will be argued before the Supreme Court today. Uh, Donald Trump will not be in attendance for that hearing, but it will be much discussed. And um, again, the court's going to be uh, under pressure to uh, issue a quick ruling on this case one way or the other. A lot of folks watching this and the implications it may have moving forward even beyond this election. You can learn more at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Scroll down to Tuesday's program. Dr. Gerber was with us. Uh, We've got a link there for more information. And if you want to hear our complete conversation uh, on this case and what it could mean, you can check out the Good Mornings podcast edition. Stream it directly from the website, Listen on demand on the WFIN app, which is free to download from the App Store or Google Play. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. More details at goodmornings.net. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. On Monday, authorities arrested one Martin Evtimov for casually strolling through the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida. Now, upon hearing just that headline, you might think, well, why in the world would somebody be arrested just for strolling through the airport? Well, it might be uh, because, number one, he was intoxicated, and number two, he was fully naked. He was completely naked walking through the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. Apparently, Mr. Evtimov parked his car on the sidewalk before entering the airport, uh, walked through the TSA security line, attempted to open a door marked restricted access, and wandered through Terminal 1 as other passengers gawked and basically moved away from... we're just going to get out of his way <laughs> um and again he was 
fully naked through this entire excursion. Uh, deputies of the Broward County Sheriff's Office uh, took him away, and he now faces charges, including uh, resisting arrest and indecent exposure. Not to mention the security risk that he posed um, <clears throat> for going through the uh, security line trying to get into a, a restricted access point at uh, the airport. I don't know that he was necessarily dangerous, however. I mean, he wasn't carrying a weapon, obviously. At least not in the traditional sense. In any event, just a little extra added excitement at the airport on Monday. Uh, elsewhere in the broken news, this from the international file, and big news here for the first time. In more than 1,200 years, women will be allowed to participate in the Sedaiji Iyo Festival in Japan. I hope I have that name right. I probably don't, but at least points for trying. Uh, this festival in Japan is held every February and is, most, uh, is the most famous of the Naked Man Festivals. The Naked Man Festivals. Multiple Naked Man Festivals apparently are held in Japan every February, and uh, this is the most famous of those. Uh, traditionally, it has been open only to males, but for several years, COVID-related restrictions forced the event to go digital, which resulted in more women wanting to participate. Um, well, last month, Women were allowed at the Katsubi Fire Festival for the first time, and now it looks like the Naked Man Festivals are following in the same footsteps. Forty women will participate this year, um, but it should be pointed out, they will not be completely naked. Women will be required to wear traditional hoppy coats and make offerings of bamboo grass. Uh, but the women, nonetheless, seem excited to be involved for the first time. Uh, let's see here. <clears throat> a lot of nudity in the broken news this morning for some reason. I always imagine that uh, would do wonders for Japanese tourism there. The Naked Man Festival. Uh, did you hear about this? I actually saw this story yesterday uh, in the uh, headlines, and I don't know what to make of it. A man who calls himself Pro-Life Spider-Man says he scaled the Las Vegas sphere to raise money for to help out a, a pregnant woman in need. He scaled, climbed to the top of the Las Vegas sphere. How he did this, I have no idea, because, I mean, the sphere is round. Um, so I don't know how he did this. Mason Deschamps posted video on his Instagram account from a top the 366-foot-tall structure. How he did this without anyone seeing him uh, is beyond me. Uh, police in Las Vegas took Mr. Deschamps into custody following his climb. Apparently, this is not the first time he has pulled this kind of a stunt. Last year, uh, he did something similar in Phoenix during the Super Bowl. So, I don't know. That's just... I don't know how he could have climbed to the top of the sphere. So, by the way, speaking of the sphere and, and Vegas, did you know, this is a crazy story, one of the hottest tourist spots in Las Vegas these days 
is a parking lot. Tourists and locals alike are heading to the parking garage of the Hughes Center. And why is this parking lot such a hot tourist spot? Because it just so happens that this parking garage of the Hughes Center, you can get an unobstructed view of the Las Vegas sphere. People are going there for an unobstructed view of the sphere. And uh, as a result, the parking company has opened up the lots to the general public at night uh, so that they can park and get an unobstructed view of the sphere. And of course, in true Las Vegas tradition, they are charging $25 a spot just just to park. Uh, there and watch the sphere and on nights where there is a band playing you too has been playing at the uh, sphere on nights where there is a, a concert the price goes up by 10 bucks 35 bucks just to park in a parking lot to look at the sphere um we were getting endless lines of people offering to pay to park just to stand on top of the garage and take a picture of the sphere so we embraced it uh says uh, brandon myers of laz parking the uh, company that owns the structure. Uh, one tourist who paid the 35 bucks to <laughs> for this parking spot to view the sphere said, it is well worth the money. I guess there are worse things to do with your money in Vegas, that's for sure. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. The hottest tourist spot in Vegas is a parking lot. And finally, in the broken news this morning... Uh, this is not an unusual story per se in the, uh, in the broken news. We've heard of stories like this, but it does have a bit of a different twist. A guy in Maine, um, and his metal detector his metal detector, uh, on the, uh, on the beach. And you see people like this, they have to take their metal detectors on the beach to see what they can find. So these metal detectionist stumbled upon a ring that had washed ashore along the Penobscot Bay. And uh, finding the ring, he wanted to locate the owner, right? He wanted to get it back to, obviously, this is a ring that had been lost, and he wanted to find the owner. Months after finding the ring, Scott Menke cleaned it up in hopes of selling it online. To his surprise, one of the responses came from a woman who believed the ring belonged to her. After the woman was able to accurately identify both the initials and the date inscribed on the ring, Mr. Mankey tried to arrange a meeting so that he could return it to her. Turns out, she later explained that the ring belonged to her ex-husband, who apparently tossed it into the water deliberately. The woman, the woman told Mr. Mankey she didn't want it back. She said, you can keep it, you can sell it, you can do whatever you want with it. I don't want it back. They threw it into the ocean to get rid of it. <laughs> and then it washed ashore. Uh, so apparently it's now been put up for sale uh, if there are any takers for the unlucky wedding ring. Their apparently unlucky wedding ring. That is today's Broken News Report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. 
Sunday, the San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs meet in Super Bowl 58. Hi, this is Scott Graham. Join me and the rest of our Westwood One crew from Las Vegas for all the action. The Chiefs are trying to defend their title and win a third Lombardi trophy in the last five seasons. But the Niners are hoping to avenge their loss in Super Bowl 54. If it's Super Bowl 58, it's right here. Sunday afternoon at 2, 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives with Valentine's Day right around the corner. According to data from the National Retail Federation, consumers plan to spend a total of $25.8 billion to celebrate the Day of Romance this year. $25.8 billion. Uh, That is... You can compare that to last year where it was a total of $25.9 billion. So slightly lower, but it is still the third highest haul for retailers in the history of the uh, Valentine's Day spending survey from the NRF. $25.8 billion. 62% of consumers between the ages of 25 and 34 are planning to celebrate this year. And if you are looking to shop for your significant other, you are certainly not alone. 57% of consumers are expected to buy candy for that special someone this year. Candy, 57%. 40% will buy greeting cards. 39% will buy flowers. Um, 32% of consumers say they will, spending, uh, will be spending the evening out with their sweetheart. Uh, So those are the things. And obviously there are some people who will be doing all of those things. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, the the spending the evening out, dinner and a movie or dinner and a show, whatever it might happen to be, uh, that is the second highest category of spending in terms of dollars, $4.9 billion. Uh, Second only to jewelry, which is $6.4 billion worth of spending. Uh, and about $2.6 billion expected to be sent, spent on flowers for the big day, according to the National Retail Federation. So just kind of breaking down some of those numbers on what we'll be getting for our sweethearts and how much money we will actually be spending on them. It's a lot for Valentine's Day and a more 25 Billion, almost $26 billion. That is just crazy to me. And again, uh, just to go back, uh, it's 62% of consumers are planning to celebrate this year. Can you imagine if they could get the other 38% to participate, what that number would be? Well, you know, if you're a regular listener to this program, we love talking about the local... Performing arts, everything from what's going on at the Marathon Center, the Fort Finley Playhouse, and the Ritz Theater in Tiffin. Well, there's so many great youth theater. There are just so many uh, opportunities within the performing arts uh, in this area. Well, this is kind of taking that to the next level. Local filmmaker A.J. Dufresne uh, has a new project, a new film coming out, which will premiere... What next weekend, right, uh, AJ? This is uh, next weekend. The premiere over at the uh, at the Ritz. 
That's correct, on February 18th. February Sunday. 18th, and uh, it is a, a film called Act of God. A.J. Dufresne with us uh, on the line this morning. First of all, talk a little bit about this uh, story. It is actually based on a true story. Not This is not a, a story that happened here, necessarily, but you... Uh, how did you find out about the story? Give us kind of the background here. Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I have two of my friends that you probably know in the community knows, Aaron Osborne and Ben Walton. Mm-hmm. Um, we were working at UF. Uh, basically gave me a challenge and said, if you write a script, um, we can make it and produce it. And I was like, cool. So the first script I wrote was called The Doorman. It was about a guy who made doors for a living, and it was a door into the uh, multiverse, multi-universe. Mm. And okay. then they came back and said to me, well, make something we can shoot. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you so, didn't have a multi-million uh, dollar special effects budget. Uh, yeah, for this. exactly. Yeah, yeah, a lot of green screen. A little ambitious. TV, so I'm like, <laughs> back to the drawing board. Uh, so um, I just started doing some research about other stuff. and came across this article called California Suit, and it was in Santa Rosa, California from 1969. And it just said an Oakland attorney filed a $100,000 damage suit against the deity for careless and negligent negligent control of the weather and i'm like hmm that's interesting and i thought well i could write that script and it'd be easy to shoot because we could shoot it in the courthouse and uh Uh be a dialogue and that's basically how it started and i wrote the script 13 versions later um (laughs) we had you know and that's kind of where um all of it came to fruition so the story is uh, a woman and again this actually happened a woman sued god because uh what the the extreme weather uh, destroyed her house. Is that the? Is that it? That's correct. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a true story about a woman from. It was 1960 when it actually took place, uh-huh. um, and she sued God uh, for destroying her home with lightning. And she lived in Arizona. And what had happened? What what had took taken place in 1969 was that this guy, Lou Gottlieb, who was a real person who you know played bass for uh, the Limelighters tried to avoid taxes, so he he um, conveyed his land to God uh, in Sonoma County, and Russell Tansy, who was Betty's attorney, said, hey, here's an opportunity. God now owns land and property, real property, in Sonoma County, so they brought suit there, and that's kind of where the, the hijinks take place wow. uh, in the actual script. So there, there, there was a, I mean, she... Had a um, it was an interesting story because um, one it was Gottlieb and uh, the real people that are you know actually part of this and the hippies and all you know, all yeah. that so yeah it was pretty interesting uh, so she took the opportunity to sue God in Sonoma County uh, for the destruction of her property one of in the, Arizona one of the uh, most unusual lawsuits uh, ever filed and uh, obviously uh, some notoriety uh, associated with that as you might imagine so. Talk a little bit about making the movie. Uh, this was filmed uh, pretty much all locally, right? That's correct. Yeah, we shot it at the, uh, the courthouse, the Hancock County Courthouse. Uh, we have a friend um, with uh, Judge Routon, and um, he uh, gave us permission to use the, um, the courthouse, and we did it over a weekend. Uh, the court scenes, and then we used the outside of the courthouse for some other um, uh, some other exterior shots at the beginning, and then um, 
we did all the shooting in, in probably a week, and then it took us months between Aaron and I to edit, color, and uh, do the audio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long process, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's it's that's why it's only thirty minutes long. Uh, that's why I was going to ask. You know how long the the production schedule was actually pretty tight because you're using actually a working courtroom as the main set here. Yeah, exactly. And you know, getting in there was um, was difficult, and I really appreciate what uh, Reggie Routson was able to do for us. And he came and let us in and said, "Okay, uh, don't ruin anything." The only thing we did was. <laughs> Changed the flag from the uh, state of Ohio flag to a state of California, California flag, flag for the shoot. That was pretty, pretty yeah. much it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and as we all know, it's not unusual for uh, films to be shot in locations other than the original location. So uh, it's just a longstanding tradition in, in filmmaking. Um, but this also, obviously, a lot of the people that will appear in the film will be familiar to people as well. Yes. Uh Julie Taft Ryder, who is Betty Penrose, um, she's local. She's been in many productions in the high school to uh, the Finley Playhouse. Um, George Russmeyer plays Slim Jim Robbins. Uh, he's the defendant. And Ryan Parker, who's a musician, local musician, mm-hmm. plays Russell Tansy. Um, yeah, we, and then um, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, there's a couple. John McKinnon, who uh, uh, plays a judge. He's a friend of mine from high school. Um, He's got an interesting past because he was a detective in uh, uh, Alaska, and he's been on the Discovery Channel's true crime shows mm. for Cold Blooded Alaska and See No Evil. And, wow. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> they all come with uh, various levels of experience. And uh, we had two rehearsals, and I'm telling you, I was just flabbergasted. I couldn't believe how well they hit their marks, hit their lines, and it was really uh, extraordinary to work with them. They were very professional, and uh, just to, even Julie, you know, in the background when the judge or the um, her attorney Russell was talking, and her responses with her facial expressions, so just make me laugh, you know. Yeah, and that's probably the best way I could describe this movie because I, I showed it to them, and they're like, "Well, is it a drama or a comedy?" And I'm like, "Well, we have to call it a dramedy because it's got drama and comedy in it." But yeah. it's not making fun of God; it's it's making fun of the process you know, of what they're trying to accomplish. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, this is a very unusual lawsuit that carries with it some absurdity, uh, yeah. a certain level of absurdity, but at the same time, um, you know, some, uh, some interesting issues that are raised in terms of jurisprudence here, as we mentioned, uh, the uh, first screening, the premiere, is going to be uh, next weekend, uh, February 18th, and this is at the Ritz. If folks want to see the show, how do they get tickets for this? Well, the tickets are free, um, and it starts, <clears throat> sorry, the tickets are free, and they start, it starts at 6 p.m., doors okay. open at 6 p.m. Okay. I'll probably start the film about 6.30, but um, they can either email me, um, there are no physical tickets. It's just, I'm just trying to track who's coming. It's a big theater. It's got 1,200 seats. Yeah. Um, I think we have about 200 coming so far. So you could just show up, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's it. Um, tickets are free and show up. And um, you can obtain them by emailing me if you want, LakeGaryTV, gmail.com. All right, very good. And uh, we've got a link up on our webpage for the teaser for the movie, Act of God. Uh, again, A.J. Dufresne, uh, who uh, 
put it together, writing, directing, uh, producing this uh, this film. It sounds like it's going to be a really interesting uh, show and uh, yeah. one that you won't want to miss. Uh, AJ, Thurst, uh, thanks very much for uh, taking the time this morning. Certainly best of luck with the uh, film and continued success moving forward. Thank you. I appreciate it, Chris. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage and that, of course, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, among other things, we'll have a special collection of recipes from Kyra's Kitchen for the Super Bowl, for Valentine's Day, and for Mardi Gras, all rolled into one. How cool is that? So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.